Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. But before we begin, would you pray with me one more time as God's words preached? Father God, as we open your word together, Lord, we ask that your good news of grace would be so beautiful to us that we would slow down and admire it. That our striving in this moment would cease. That we would together drink from what you call living water. God, that our thirsty hearts would be refreshed. Lord, your psalms say that in your light we see light. And so, Father God, light our way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, last week uh, we kind of set the scene for the conversation that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a respected teacher in his community, he met with Jesus in the middle of the night. And Jesus shared with him the need for an inward change. This is a spiritual birth caused by the Holy Spirit, resulting in a faith in Jesus that leads to eternal life in God's kingdom. And Jesus calls this being born again. At the end of our passage last week, Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can these things be? As he marveled in astonishment, at the plans of God unfolding before him. And this week, we're going to continue to look at Jesus' explanation of how these things can be. And we're going to see Jesus evangelize, and we're going to encounter what might be the most loved, most memorized, and most quoted Bible verse in our world today. We love quotable phrases, right? We speak to one another all the time using the quotes and phrases of others. Uh, As a child of the 80s and the 90s, I feel like I might have grown up in the golden age of catchphrases. Uh, Maybe you can remember some of these. Hasta la vista, baby. Remember that one? Wax on. Wax off. My name is Diego Montoya. (laughs) You killed my father. Prepare to die. Run, Forrest, run. Don't have a cow, man. I know you are, but what am I? Points if you know where that first came from. Uh, Did I do that? No soup for you. Hey, you guys. These are so weird, right? The way that they work their way into our culture, uh, the way that they change the way that we talk to one another and relate to one another, but they do it. They're doing it today. They have some kind of impact. They resonate They encapsulate a moment, and they can have a long shelf life, but then they die, and the catchphrase loses its impact, becomes stale. We just heard it too much. Its significance is eventually lost, and for those who continue to quote these things, thinking that they're relevant, we roll our eyes. So is John 3.16 just a worn-out catchphrase? Something that's held on a sign at a baseball game. Something that defined a moment, 
but we just heard it too much and too often, has become white noise. Is it so far removed from its original context in your mind that you've never actually considered that the first time these words were spoken, it was in a private conversation in the middle of the night between Jesus and someone begging to know how these things can be? How is God going to do this? How is he going to take what's wrong between me and him and make it right? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't just tell Nicodemus how. He tells him why. And this morning, uh, we're going to see how Jesus talks about God's great love, our great problem, and the greatest change imaginable. So let's look again one more time in full at our passage for today. John 3. 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the first thing that we're going to talk about today is God's great love. I don't know if there's anything more misunderstood than love to our great harm and detriment. Love has become a feeling, a feeling that we fall in and out of. And most often, has played out in life's experiences and in the stories and the entertainment we consume, the feeling of love can be selfish. We want to be loved. We want to be valued and affirmed, to have our needs met, to be supported, to be thought of, to be cherished and delighted in. We want to be loved, but love is costly. Because love isn't a feeling, love is an action. And when we fall out of love, what has happened is that we've said that the cost is not worth the benefit. Love in this way becomes transactional. With both parties proclaiming, I will love you, but only if you love me. And without a steady supply of warm fuzzies coming my way, (laughs) my love for you will run cold. Praise God for the way that he loves us. God's love is costly, it's generous, and it met us when we were at our worst. John three sixteen to 18, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So how much does God love the world? So much so that he gave his only son. 
And what did he give his son to? Jesus told us in our passage last week in John uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. God the Father sent his Son, his only Son, not to be exalted on a throne, but to be lifted up on a cross, to die in the place of sinners. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 to 21, speaking of Jesus and God the Father, Matthew quotes Isaiah and says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus is God's beloved son. And the father makes this explicit at Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 3, uh, 16 to 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now I don't want to Presume too much about the mind of God. But doesn't he seem proud? That's my boy. Later in this chapter, John has this to say in verse 35. John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. When the father sent Jesus, he didn't send any son. He sent his beloved son. Understanding the love and relationship between the Father and the Son here is foundational for the gospel to make a change in your heart. If we rightly understand how the Father loves the Son, we will rightly understand and believe in God's love for us. Because God didn't just send his Son, he gave his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And why did he do it? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So how do we know that God loves us? Do we know because of a feeling or because of his actions? It's his actions, of course. What he's done, what he's accomplished for us. How do we know that God loves us? Because he loves the son and he gave his son not to condemn us, but to save us. God looks upon his creation and all the sinful and fallen rebellious people and he loves them and he offers eternal life to them. And this was only possible in Jesus. Where there was no hope through Jesus, God has opened a door who can go through it? The scripture says, whoever believes. This offer of salvation and forgiveness is extended to the world. 
from the best of us to the person who has done their best to do their worst. To the young and the old, to the rich and the poor, from every nation and every race and every creed, whoever believes in the saving power of the Son should not perish but have eternal life. Christ has come to save, and he will save all who believe in him. And we need saving. The danger is real. Last week, we talked about our spiritual death due to sin. And we are, without the work of the Holy Spirit, not only spiritually dead, but we have an eternal spiritual death sentence. When we continue our sin and our rebellion next to the perfection of a holy God, condemnation would be a reasonable assumption. And so when it says that Christ didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it, this is incredible news. (laughs) Because the truth is, as we'll see in our next section, we have been condemned already. And on our own, all of us would remain condemned for our sin. And the penalty for sin is death. And this is our great problem. Turn to John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. When it comes to personal morality... And how to understand good and evil, the basic worldview that's held by most people that you'll encounter is this. We are born good, and from there we make good decisions with good consequences, or we make bad decisions with bad consequences. But as we talked about last week, uh, biblical worldview says that we are born spiritually dead. Remember Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins? Another text, Romans 3, 10 to 18, goes on to describe this spiritual deadness in detail. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is why Jesus stresses the need to be born again. Because without faith in Jesus, without being born again, we are condemned already. When Adam sinned, a trial of humanity took place, and God proclaimed a sentence on us all, and it's death, both physical and spiritual. And if you're here today, and you think that the sentence is too harsh, I want you to think about this. I heard this somewhere before, I can't remember where, but the thought goes like this. If I went home today and I lied to my kids about something, what would happen to me? Nothing. They're kids. They can't do anything. They can't punish me. If I lied to my wife, well, that's different. At the very least, we're going to have like a long conversation. We're going to talk about why did I do that? 
Trust has been broken, and it will need to be restored. Now, if I lie to my boss, or if I lie to someone from the government, I could be fired. I could go to jail. And in all of these cases, I committed the same crime. I lied. But there was an increase in punishment for the very same act. So what changed each time was the authority of the one I've sinned against. Who I committed the crime against determines the punishment. And so when we lie, we're sinning against the God of truth. And his authority is far above all other authorities or judges or family members. When we commit a sin against the eternally perfect, good and true, holy God of the universe, then it demands an eternal punishment because of the authority of the one that we've sinned against. In this light, when we consider who we have sinned against, the sentence is not too harsh, but it's devastating. And now in our passage today, there's a very distinct difference when we compare it to last week's passage. You might have caught it. Last week began as a conversation between Jesus, Jesus and Nicodemus. Part meet and greet, part debate. But in today's passage, Nicodemus is speechless. We don't hear from him. He simply has nothing to add. And why do you think that is? Do you remember when you, you got it? When it clicked for you? When you realized that you were a sinner? In need of Jesus to save you? Do you remember when the good news of the gospel became good news for you? The good news became good when you clearly saw the problem between you and God. You see, in our passage, Jesus is showing us today how to evangelize. How we can share, how can we share and talk about the gospel in a way that magnifies its beauty? We have to talk about how bad things are in our condition without Christ in order to understand how good they are with him. While every conversation and proclamation of the gospel will be different, some things are always the same. In order for people to savingly believe in Jesus, before we understand the good news, we have to understand the bad news. To be saved, someone needs to know what they are saved from and what they're saved for. If we don't understand the bad news, then the good news isn't good. And Jesus understands this, and he makes it as clear as possible to Nicodemus and to us today. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus makes it simple. And the simplicity on one side is so uh, beautiful that it's almost like the sun that you can't look directly at it. It's so good. And on the other side, it's terrifyingly beyond our comprehension how bad it is. To be condemned would mean that we'll be judged for our sins. In the scriptures, God's judgment against sin is described as his wrath. This is what we are saved from in Jesus. And John goes on to say in verse 36 of chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. I think this is the definition of perishing. God's wrath forever against you. Like when it says in John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Perishing is the alternative to eternal life and eternal death. It's the default conclusion to a life lived in rebellion. And the deepest rebellion here that is presented in the scripture is not believing in the salvation of God's son. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. The reputation, the worth, and the work of the only son of God. Perishing is where we were all headed in our sin. Salvation is the exception. Salvation is an active, rescuing work of God. And this is really good news. Eternal life with God, free from the sentences of sin and death, that's what we're saved for. The bad news is really bad. But the good news is really, really good. The bad news is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The bad news is that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. This is our state without God's action. But God does act. Salvation is an active work of God, powered by his love for sinful people. Sinful people who can't do a thing to save themselves. This is good news. So here's the good news of the gospel from Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 9. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Like we saw last week, God has promised to make us spiritually alive. And he does this through faith in Christ. He does this work actively, decisively. He's not just involved in it. It only happens because of him. So doesn't this lead you to worship? Doesn't this make you want to sing? If you see the beauty of Christ, if you rejoice in his resurrection, if the sin that once captured your heart is becoming vile and the indifference that you felt towards God is turning into passion for his glory, if heaven is where your hope is and you know that God will get you there, then God has made you alive. He did this for you. If the season we're in right now leaves you feeling like we're in trouble, we got these masks and this fear of sickness. What's going to happen with the schools? What's going to happen with our country? 
All of these things are real. And they can be anxiety-producing for sure. But the truth is, the least safe that you have ever been is before you knew Christ. That's the most vulnerable that you ever were. And God has solved that problem for eternity. And that's how we can be sure that he will be with us through this current trial too. Because our current trial pales in comparison next to the death sentence that we were under without Christ. And through Jesus, God has proved his love for us for now and forever. And our problem was great and his mercy was greater. Like the song says, right? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. As we move into our last section for today, we're going to look at the greatest change imaginable. In this last part, Jesus sets up a contrast between light and dark. We all understand this metaphor. Light is good, dark is bad. In the light, we can't see things. Or in the dark, we can't see things. We hide things in the dark. In the light, we can see. In the light, things are exposed. Good things and bad things. But Jesus goes further than simply setting up the contrast. He calls himself the light and illustrates how people respond to him. So let's read John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So let's break this section down. This is the ending uh, of our passage, our time in John 3. And this is such a wonderful way to wrap up uh, what we heard last week and what we've been looking at today. And that's because the greatest change imaginable occurs when people encounter the light of Christ. And so I have a couple of subpoints for this section to help us see the comparison here. People encounter the light, and then there are those who hate the light and those who come to the light. So first we'll talk about those who hate the light. Verse 19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now when we encounter Jesus, there is no greater confrontation that our souls will experience. In the last point, we looked at our great problem. But it's not just that we sin. It's that we love sin. It's that we prefer it. When we sin, we sin because we want to. And some of the ways that Scripture describes this are lusts of the heart, passions of the flesh, pleasure in wickedness, lovers of darkness, rejoicing in evil and in the perverseness of evil. And so our sin loves the darkness because in it we hide. Our hiding spot is where we can tell ourselves that we're okay, 
that we don't need God's power. Ours is enough. We don't need a change. We are good the way we are. And there are many places to hide. Here's a couple. We can hide in the open. It's true. We can hide in large groups where we proclaim that light is darkness and darkness is light. Don't you see this today? Romans 125 says that when we do this, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So gathering together in the open and saying repeatedly that something wrong is right doesn't make the wrong thing right. But it can soothe the conscience to know that others are broken in a similar way. But we shouldn't want to hide in a group to commiserate about our sin and say it's not that bad. You want to fight sin. Make no room for it. Because when we meet the Lord, we won't have a group to hide in. We will all stand before God alone. You know, we can even hide in churches. We can come near to the light, but we're not yet willing to do the costly work of letting go of the sins that we love. Is this you? Do you know that there's a place in your heart that you are keeping from God? What do you believe this sin is providing for you that God is withholding from you? I want to encourage you today, if you're hiding because you think that God is keeping something good from you, consider Romans 8.32 in light of our time with John 3.16. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God isn't holding you back from joy. He's inviting you into it. It's found in Jesus. Today, don't let your pride stand in the way of the Holy Spirit's work. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're hiding in darkness because you're afraid and embarrassed, worried about what will happen, lest your works be exposed, the truth is that your works are already exposed. God knows them. Your hiding isn't fooling him. Come to Jesus and you'll find God rich in mercy, able to forgive to the uttermost, able to cleanse from all unrighteousness, able to make alive what was dead. People encounter the light of Christ. There are those who hate it, and there are those who come to the light. Jesus says in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. For those whose hearts have been made alive in Christ, born again through the Holy Spirit, they don't take credit for this change or for anything that's good in them. The very purpose of life changes, and now we live for the glory of God. This is what it means that people would see that our works have been carried out in God. The work of the new birth, the work of dying to self and living to righteousness, this miraculous work has been carried out by God, and we respond in worship, and we come to him. This is the greatest change imaginable. The lovers of the darkness would come to love the light. That worshipers of self 
would worship Jesus as Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5.15 it says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Those who come to the light have no fear of being exposed as a sinner because that's what we are. And until Christ comes back, that's what we will be. But we're sinners saved by God's grace. And those who have been born again don't hide their imperfections. They point to Christ's perfection. They point to Christ's perfection and they believe that bit by bit that God is going to continue through the power of his Holy Spirit in us. He's going to continue to renew our minds and our hearts. I'm so grateful this morning for this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus for the way that it's helped lead me to worship God. And though he was speechless in our text today, John 3 isn't the end of Nicodemus' story in the Bible. He shows up again in John chapter 7, where as part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, he becomes the only one to defend the process by which Jesus is being judged in the trial that will lead to his crucifixion. He's mocked for this. But the last time that we hear of Nicodemus is after Jesus' crucifixion, where he provides the supplies for Jesus' burial. And he assists Joseph of Arimathea in preparing the body of Jesus to be laid in the tomb. In John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, and Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus provided 75 pounds of these burial supplies. This was not cheap. This quantity of balms and spices and myrrh, it was extravagant. One theologian said that it exceeded all normal proportions, and this is a royal burial. Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night, now becomes openly identified with him. The one who asked, how can these things be, saw the crucifixion with his own eyes. He saw God give his son. He saw the how, and he knew the why. For God so loved the world, I don't believe that this phrase ever became white noise to Nicodemus. And may that be said of us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for the simplicity of the gospel. Lord, that 
It is this message uh, that for over 2,000 years has gone forward and has saved souls for eternity. Lord, it hasn't uh, saved us to simply provide an easy life in the here and now. But God, your Holy Spirit's work in our heart, opening our eyes and making us alive in Christ. Lord, you've given us the strength to follow you into eternity, no matter the road that takes us there. God, I pray that you would uh, be with our church. Help us to be a church that clings to the gospel, that preaches the gospel, and Lord, sees the beauty of it. Lord, I thank you for the way we got to slow down today and hear these words. God, I pray that you would impact every heart exactly the way as your will purposes. And God, that your Holy Spirit would help us fall in love with Jesus all the more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.